Hello, and you're very welcome along with me, Cleon and Ianlone, for another podcast edition of Spoken Stories. This series of new stories takes its theme, Creatures of the Earth, from a story and a collection of stories by John McGahern. Here's writer Keelan Hughes on her new story. In John McGahern's story, Creatures of the Earth, a bereaved family closes up their big house and moves to a remote cottage on Ackle Island, a summer house in the deep of winter. I think that in periods of distress, maybe especially in grief, there can be an impulse to leave familiar, comfortable places because what was familiar and comfortable and certain before has suddenly hollowed out. There can be an impulse to isolate. In the story you'll hear now, a mother who has limited custody of her children takes them out of school where she believes they're in danger from falling space debris and takes them to a remote shelter for the time being. Like McGahern's story, it's about the attempt to cope with vulnerability. And here, the defence manoeuvre available seems to be one of eclipse. Keelan Hughes Now, Maria Doyle Kennedy reads Flatland with Monuments by Keelan Hughes. Outside, the sky is wild, flecked in bark and feather. Crows take their pick of the twig scaffolding, then carry their body weight in Chinese fountain grass for bedding. The crows have high intentions. They land upon the nude winter tree line and bloom it. Inside the classroom, the children's intentions are being tested. They carry numbers down long divisions. Rowan Donovan scribbles dense biro nests over his errors. He doesn't want the numbers to splinter under his pen as they're doing. He wants them to be strict and convinced as they are in the clock. Biro casing crackles in his grip. More than once in Rowan's nine years, there's been an emergency, so he's allowed to have a phone. He takes it out beneath his desk to check his answer against the calculator app, but a message from his mother's on the screen. Get your sister and go to the gate. Say that you're being collected. Say that tomorrow you'll bring a note. They're not meant to see their mother till Easter because of her behaviour. The fire steel and flint she'd strung on twine around their necks for wearing all the time, for readiness. The twenty miles she'd made them cycle, fast as they could, though she'd held her palm to Chloe's tiny back all the way. Rowan knows better than to text his mother to ask why, or to say about the test. He gathers his pens. On the way to the gate, Chloe chews her fingernails for the tangy nectarine rind buried there. Her nails still ache from peeling the tight orange skin, but the sweet, sharp taste is worth the ache. Her brother won't hold her hand anyway. Friends watch from the windows, taking bets as to what accident has happened but no one can guess about their mother because Chloe never explained. She never told anyone about their mother predicting the future and stopping it like a train. Exhaust smoke is coming from the car, but the storm is too loud to hear the engine. When her mother smiles in the rear-view mirror, sweat glitters on her lip. She's not 
wearing nice clothes and her hair is stuck to her skull, but she still looks pretty. Rowan is on his phone. He doesn't feel it in his belly. The turns they've taken, the new roads they're on, so windy that Chloe tastes tangerine again. Rowan hasn't noticed that their mother is driving in the middle of the road. Perhaps it's to see around bends. Her chest is pressing the steering wheel so that it beeps. Just to let them know we're coming, she says. These corners are so blind. But she isn't looking round corners. She's looking way, way up. Naturally, nothing. Morna mutes the radio. Not so much as a jingle of warning about the space debris that's on its faithless way. In the mirror, her daughter looks buttermilky, but they can't slow down. It travels 22 times faster than sound. There's a gallon of water in the boot to rehydrate her if the child vomits. Pull the seatbelt down from your throat, love. Morna needs to steer the child's mind onto safe, unwinding terrain. If you had your own radio show, Chloe, what music would you play? Give the girl a blank page and she'll fill it front and back. She is rich with ideas. Chloe looks out the window to give her thoughts space to flurry. She voices some whims about snowman aliens, about shoe-swapping schemes and bracelets. Morna searches for scorch marks at the edge of the atmosphere. There's no way all twenty tons of the empty core stage will conveniently combust or land as ashen rain in Loch Ree. This is not Siberia or the Canadian tundra. The land is flat as a racetrack, with only townships for hurdles to limit a blast radius. Whatever this field trip is, Rowan shouldn't be on it. He should have completed the test. Maths is his best subject because it's not a grey area like history. He doesn't have a chance to read the information board where they've parked before their mother has run across a field, beckoning them. She is crouched by a hawthorn tree in the distance. The picnic basket she'd given him is so loaded, the wicker shrieks. He can't hear what his sister is yelling with her hood up and the racket of branches and booing cows and the suck of his leather shoes in the onion soup ground. Soon, they're all panting at the corner of a field where the ground is simply and impossibly open. There's a dark, gaping hole where there should be level grass, like a tract of dead pixels on a screen. It will be cosy inside, their mother promises. It's just the place for right now. She unzips her huge waterproof bag and distributes torches. They remind Rowan of his first Holy Communion, the candles they'd been given in preparation. But he didn't go through with it on the day because, well, his father had said the decision should be his own, but his mother had texted, don't. She believes nothing is looking out for us. No person or power or institution takes suitable care with our lives, no matter their certificates or sirens. And that was why she had the gun. She says, science is drastically underfunded, incomplete, inadequate or worse, steered by corporate finance and media interests. Their dad is agnostic, meaning undecided. A hand on Rowan's back urges him to go down first. His mother rests the basket from his clutch, says she'll come back for these things once they're in. 
He shines his torch into the muddy hollow that's like a long, sickly throat. Because of physics, Morna says, a collision sent a huge piece of space debris into rapid orbital decay. Once we're in, I'll explain. It's advanced maths, Rowan. Mechanics. You know Newton's laws. In fact, it's calculus. Unilevel stuff. But I bet my car you'll have it mastered by the time you're 15. 14. 13. 12. 11. She prods him in the side. In you go. Quick. It's Chloe's turn now, but she doesn't want to go in. The creature that made this hole must be bigger than a rabbit. It must be inside, ready to pounce on intruders, like her mother had been. Her mother runs her thumbs down Chloe's cheeks and says, It can't crumble. It's been here since the Iron Age. It's where all the kings and queens of ancient Ireland were coronated. And that's just the entrance. The cave deeper in is even older. It's many, many ice ages old, you'll see. It's hardier than a castle. No, we won't get stuck. I know you're brave enough. You trust me, don't you? Chloe is weeping, nodding, remembering her father shouting, Who the hell are you? Which made Chloe fear there was another thief in the house. The first one their mother had fired at. She had scared him away. The policeman wanted to see a license and their mother had one. Their father had shouted and shouted. She had scared him away with that secret. Chloe isn't scared of the giant rabbit hole, but picnics are for outside, not in. And she doesn't want to go down its mucky slide. She's backing away from the entrance when her mother gets on her hunkers. Up you hop, piggyback. Morna snorts and trundles low as a pig to make her daughter giggle and to fit through the space. She pretends the torch between her teeth is a snout, sniffing out edible grubs. She was a professional mid-distance runner before having kids, and though she spent her nine years sports retirement developing her mind, she's still physically extraordinary, strappy and strong as Kevlar. She bears no evidence of injury. She sets Chloe down, relieved to have got them beneath this first layer of rock. She points to notches carved into the ceiling lintel stones. Morna talks her daughter through the low, dry stone passage to the cave entrance a few metres ahead, where Rowan is on all fours, dealing with this one-way situation square inch by square inch. He's a highly capable boy, given an adequately literal direction, given adequately few choices. He's using his phone's torch for extra light, but the light is absorbed like water in snow. Morna hears her daughter panting, and Camley tells her that before the scientific enlightenment, people believed this place was a magical gate to other worlds. Not hell, she says, and these words resound uncooperatively. The ancient Celts believed the barrier between worlds was thinner here. And they had a funny story about a horde of pigs that trotted out one Halloween. Every time the pigs were counted, they multiplied. So soon there were hundreds of the huge otherworld pigs that ate everything in their path. Boulders, fences, barrels of beer. Not humans. She runs the torch past her daughter's face. She improvises, softening what the mythmakers had left rock hard. If the pigs 
so much as licked a human they'd turned to stone, so they wouldn't eat us. Seeing Chloe's eyes widen at the stone walls enclosing them, Morna adds, Another time, a flock of red birds flew out with such smelly breath that the leaves on the trees all shriveled and fell off. And the crops failed. Morna holds this detail in. In her retirement, Morna has had time to get the lay of the land. She took a guided tour of these sites and is writing her own handbook of places to go in various scenarios. Rowan is through to the cave part, and seeing that he's standing upright in there, Chloe lets go of her mother's hand. She's small enough to duck through. Morna isn't. Rowan, look after Chloe. I'm popping back to get the picnic. I'll be 40 seconds. Count if you want to. There's no phone signal. Rowan turns off his torch so the blackness collapses around him. He grabs his sister before she can scramble for the exit. We have to let our eyes adjust. He wrestles to turn off her torch, but she screams and pulls her arm free and shines the light manically around. She screams again, but this time it's to hear herself resound. Don't you want to see in the dark? There could be glow-in-the-dark insects and stuff. Come on, Chloe. It's been more than 40 seconds. What is their mother doing? Rabbit bats must be a likelier airstrike than space debris. Space is 93 billion light-years in diameter. This cave is 30, 35 metres. Every time Rowan counts to 10, it seems smaller. He could measure the space in paces, but he should wait for her. The walls shimmer, gluey. Overhead, there's a high, tapered hollow like the chapel. He wants one of those lasers that tells you how far things are away because you need some information to base your calculations on. Even Kepler needed more than a pen and paper to measure the distance to the sun, the astronomical unit. Their father doesn't have a laser range finder. There's nothing good in the garage without their mother's things, the telescope, power tools, the generator. Once she'd gone, their father brought all her tins of tuna and sardines and beans and tomatoes from the garage into the pantry and cooked a fountain of salty stews till the tins were used up and they all had runny tummies. Dinner isn't a contingency plan, he'd said, as Grace. I failed my test, Rowan says, to see how he might cope with this outcome. He had only completed six of eleven questions, which is fifty-four percent. The stone is too cold to sit on, so he kicks it. Chloe shines her torch on the stone her brother is kicking that could be one of the pigs. She scans the stone for trotters and curly tails. I got four gold stars for reading and writing. When I get six more, I get a lucky dip. Rowan gurns his jaw. She's been called a clever girl too often. What would you like to be when you grow up? What will be on your radio station? When I get six more stars, she says, not if. Rowan utters the four-letter word. When? There is the gentle pop of lips opening as Chloe replies. Tomorrow or the next day? Rowan calls her an asshole and an argument loud enough to stir an underworld of bats from hibernation erupts. Only the appearance of their mother 
pushing items through the cave entrance quiets them. The picnic basket, collapsible chairs, foam mats, a tartan blanket with a foil underside, a backpack with thermos flasks in its pockets, and ski gloves and a fold-away avalanche shovel. The down jacket she has on is making her sweat. Wearing a head torch, she glances at the space as at an old haunt that served her well. She props a pair of lanterns at a distance, making a pitched roof of light. Your Highnesses, she says, erecting the chairs. While Chloe plays house, Morna takes Rowan aside and distills the situation. Unlike algebra, calculus has to do with continual change, how different factors interact, like how air resistance impacts the velocity of a moving object. You can't calculate tail probabilities or maximum likelihoods without calculus. Remember the time in Iceland? All the factors we had to take into account? Rowan can't forget their only overseas family holiday. Two years ago, before the family unit incurred its decimal point. Rowan got to pick the destination for passing his grade one piano, but really it was for other things like counting to ten, like falling asleep, like leaving the skin on the nape of his neck alone. But when Chloe saw that Iceland was Ireland with a C, she cried such a riot it was all Rowan could do to shout, Fine! Iceland! Fine! Shut up! Though he hadn't sniffed the fermented shark at the airport kiosk, he felt continually sick from his parents' panicked currency conversions. If he'd chosen Spain, they'd have afforded a hotel. He wouldn't have had to share a tent with his sister demanding bedtime stories with elves and dragons and trolls. And a volcano might not have rumbled nearby, making the mountain glow and swell. Two days in, the volcanic activity stopped. Their mother was monitoring sensor and GPS station data because the media was beholden to economic growth and the tourism industry. Baffling everyone, she dismantled the tent and dragged them to the airport in the middle of that second night and bought new exorbitant flights home. When their father threatened to stay behind with his son, Rowan had to wrap his head in a pillow to stop hyperventilating. It turned out to be a two-day pause of volcanic activity preceding an explosion that spread ash the breath of northern Europe. Weeks they would have been trapped there. Weeks their parents fought nonetheless. One, furious at being undermined in front of their children. The other, itemising sunk costs, cowardice, complacence. Their mother answered in calculations. Finally, their father admitted defeat. Yeah, all right, she'd spare them all. She would save them again and again. The picnic is a feast. Instead of making sandwiches... Morna suggests they eat the sandwich items as separate courses, slowly. That they sip their tea instead of gulping it. Rowan braved up to a test this morning, Morna says. Proved his mettle. What was your class doing, Chloe? Slapping a floppy turkey slice against her face, Chloe says they were writing essays about their weekends, but that hers isn't finished. They're only on their first dessert course of banana when she claims to need the toilet. Morna knows it's far too early to venture out. In a bit, love. Tell me about the movie night, so, and we'll work on your essay. Was it a frozen pizza, or has your dad discovered yeast? 
The image of dough proving in a bowl like swelling mammaries makes Morna wonder about their father's needs. Morna has her own needs down to a bone minimum. She needs her children. She needs them safe. After a course of deconstructed Oreos, Chloe rolls her head at further delays. How long's a while? By the time they're playing Monopoly Deal, Chloe's legs are in a twist and she's whining. Morna offers to accompany her into the privacy of shadows to pee in a vessel. No, I want to go outside. There's debris falling from the sky today, darling, so we can't. Chloe sees her mother's shiny eyes and her crown of hair slick red like the fox in Chicken Licken. Chicken Licken was wrong about the sky. It was only an acorn that fell. Chicken was hyperbolic, Dad said. He was so worried about harmless things that he had no wits about him and he was nearly, really and truly eaten by the fox. They think it'll just be harmless ash, their mother is saying. But anything moving at eight kilometres per second should be taken seriously. The Soviet naval surveillance satellites don't have the thrust capacity built in to boost them into a medium-altitude graveyard orbit. I want to go back to school. We'll be going soon, and you'll be sad. But there's so much fun to have first. Let's quickly pee and get back to playing, and... She stands to block one lamp so the darkness spoils Chloe's notions of departure. If you get it all in the bottle... I'll give you a whole set of properties, the orange ones. Morna glances to Rowan, hoping he'll protest, but instead he says he's cold. There's down jackets in the bag, she says, but you shouldn't be. It's warmer in the cave than outside. The temperature here is constant year-round. It's an average of the annual surface temperature. If the summer high is 28 degrees and the winter low is minus 5, Rowan, what's the average? Rowan's torchlight lurches as he unclips the backpack. That's not... You can't do it like that. <sighs> she doesn't even care. She's just talking to get Chloe to pee. Fair play. Trick question. Morna talks over the trickling. She talks, so her daughter doesn't notice the shadow climbing up her pinafore where she's pissed on it. If you want to go somewhere warmer, dig. For every hundred metres down, it's three degrees warmer. So... Here's one for you. What's the temperature 450 metres beneath us? If it's 10 degrees at this altitude, no tricks. The bag is so crammed, Rowan has to pull everything out to find the jackets. For every item he unearths, he goes another 100 metres deeper. One, two, three sleeping bags, a camping stove, a cube of post-it notes, eight cans of ravioli, one of peaches, one of mandarins and syrup, bin liners, what looks like an old car radio, oats, breakfast oats. Here's a tissue to wipe. Pop it in the bottle after, good girl. With the shuffling clothes, Rowan can't think clearly. Even entombed, he can't get sufficient silence. The crows had been freaking out when he tried to do his test, their cause dopplering through the blasting wind. Now his own breath sounds of a sash window being opened and shut. The blood in his skull is air, howling down a chimney flue. Does Dad know about the satellite? Orange isn't my favourite colour anymore, Chloe says. Oh no? Morna detects an unflattering filter in her daughter's stare. Oh, 
I see. How convenient. Let me guess. Your new favourite colour is blue. The most valuable property set I own. My cunning, cunning girl. All right, have my blue set. She screws shut the wide lid of the steaming bottle. But be compassionate when your brother and I are on our knees begging you to let us off our rent. Didn't they already let Chloe win so many times? It's hard to know how many rounds they've played of how many different games. I'm going out to text Dad, Rowan says. Even Morna is surprised at her reflexes in the dark as she catches his shoulder like a passing bird. I sent him the data and he ignored me. Your father will be safe, if he is right. It's mostly loose feathers caught in her hand. His collarbone is way inside the down. A reflective stripe on his jacket glints, serving to warn traffic of a wanderer in the night. A runaway. There's the acrid smell of last-minute calculations. She'd forgotten the can opener. And spare batteries. He smells sweat. From high in the cave's rift, something drips. She lets go of his shoulder. He thumbs the home button on his phone, but it's dead. Why did you bring sleeping bags? Morna presses her copper wire hair back at the temples. Would you run cold, for one thing? She pitches her brow. And you've heard of Cucullin? Chloe groans. He's so annoying. Oh, but did you hear about the woman who killed him? A woman didn't kill him, Rowan says. A sword did. No, a woman did, in the guise of a crow. She augured his death by landing on his shoulder. She was called the Morrigan, the goddess of war and strife, and she lived in this cave. When boys wanted to prove they were ready for battle, they'd come here to face the Morrigan. She challenged them to spend the night in here. If they could do that... If they could spend a night in the cave without petulance, then they could deal with all situations correctly. They could deal with darkness. It could just be a trick of torchlight, but it seems as though she winked at him. This mother. Rowan thinks of the darkness as a blackboard upon which such myths have been written and rewritten, getting muddier in detail each time. A crow... An omen, a woman, a warrior, a god of war. This darkness is purer than the classroom blackboard, though. There's no chalk debris, no sudden scraping. But there are his sister's unfenced shadow animals. There's the overbearing halo of mother's torchlight, her stories that go nowhere, so it's obvious they were only intended to steer her children along some path. She's telling them now to be Sceptical, but not dismissive. We know that Jack's beanstalk and the magic porridge pot never existed because someone like Rowan would have recognised them as perpetual motion machines and their energies would have been harnessed. Someone like Chloe would have chatted to the giant to make him less angry, so he needn't have fallen to his death. When the cards are long dealt and the banks are long emptied, and a stalagmite of who-am-I post-it notes are heaped on the floor. Morna draws out the sleeping bags and the flask of orange cordial. It's lukewarm. It's not sweet as normal. Still, after just a plastic lidful, 
the children's mouths unpucker and the silence thickens benignly around them. She's telling them now to open their eyes wide to the darkness until they see it. Nothing outside it can get at them. Rowan's eyes are wide open. He had to calculate the square roots of big numbers to stay awake for the first night. But now he doesn't need to count to fall asleep or to stay alert or to calm down. He's gotten used to the dark. It's clearer without the batteries or talk of skies, without variables. He envisions in the cavity above them a giant Newton's cradle made of black particles so there's no clack, only the simple oscillation back and forth to the deep sleep breathing of his family. If it could only be perpetual. But the real cradle eventually slows to naught. His father cannot be breathing so slowly or deeply as them. Rowan feels a terrible pain at this thought, but it helps when he digs his thumb into the hollow between his ribs. His father said so many times that he wanted everyone to be happy and calm and well. Maybe if he just knew that they're fine now, they're calm here under the earth, he could live normally. He wouldn't need to sit by the phone. He would miss them, of course, but as he'd taught them, nothing stays the same and people make different choices. The responsibility can be overwhelming and it can hurt, but it's also very lucky to be able to say, Mum, I want to stay with Dad. Their father says such things, but like with their mother, it's only to steer his children to piano practice or school or to him. He could be saying anything. The lesson has no conclusion. It's not a sum. He can't play any instrument. He can't run fast enough to keep up with a bicycle as their mother could. Little does he know that Ed White lost his glove on the very first spacewalk and that it could become a missile. Rowan is sitting up now. He can tell that he's no longer lying down by the pressure on his sit bone. The consoling thing about the blackness is that it cannot spin. It would help for their father to know they're calm and well. He should crawl out to the surface, to a nearby road, just for a moment, to pass along the message. We're fine. Crawl under the piano just in case she was right. Maybe it's tiredness or maybe it's the change of season. Pollen travelling the passageway, the ghosty grey specks floating around him, or not floating, raining. The dots are shivering down. Rowan must be craning his neck, looking up, because there's a stretch in his throat. And then a wide, booming thud. Like a broom smacking dust from a rug. A gunshot, muffled through so much memory foam. In the moments that follow, Rowan tries to imagine his mother's face. Would it be smiling or grimacing like when she ran? All he can bring to mind are notches in stone.
That was Maria Doyle Kennedy reading the new story Flatland with Monuments by Keelan Hughes, specially written for spoken stories, Creatures of the Earth. Next time, the story Cray by Colmore Callaghan is read by Katrina Niwarahu. All spoken stories are available as they are broadcast on RTE Radio 1, on rteculture.ie and wherever you get your podcasts. From me, Cleanani Anlun, thank you for listening.